Let's pray, guys. I thank you, Father, that you have given us so many good things. You are in heaven, but you are not far from us. You rule over the earth, and you are with each one of us who knows you. I thank you, Father, that in your infinite wisdom, you have guided the events of history in such a way that we can have a personal relationship with you that doesn't require us to go to a physical building or temple, but we are the temple of God, and that in some mysterious way, your Holy Spirit is with each one of us, convicting us of sin and guiding us into the truth. And I thank you that you've given us your truth. You've given us your Bible. And you've made it clear to us what you want from us and what to do. And our struggle sometimes is believing that, believing what you've said and trusting what you've said. We do fear men more than you quite often, for we are still fallen creatures that are corrupted by our sin nature. Even though you've changed our spiritual heart, our flesh still is corrupted. And we struggle against that. And we pray, Father, for belief, help our unbelief. We pray for strength and courage to fight sin and to do the right thing. And I pray, Father, that you would give us every spiritual gift from yourself in the form of the church and the people that are here in the church. And I pray that you would strengthen us in a spiritual way that even we do not understand, to do what needs to be done. I pray now that as we go into this lesson and we wrap up this, this, this uh, curriculum, that you would make it memorable, that you would make it stick in people's minds, and that it would help those who hear it. Thank you again. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So I didn't retitle this one, so you guys might be a little confused, but we actually skipped a week because there was a, week five was just a Q&A type of structure, and since this was a compressed schedule anyways, I just went straight to the end. Because I think we've covered, for the most part, the general um, kind of outline of this, right? What is the fear of man? Fearing God instead of fearing man. Uh, Week three was this kind of self-diagnosis of the problems that you might have individually. Last week was more of like, okay, now that we know that, what are some strategies you can use to practically work through that? Like I said, week five would have been a Q&A. And week six was this idea of a new paradigm of loving and serving instead of fearing and eating, which I think is great. Uh, I didn't change much about this, once again, because I thought that the, 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 the way that it was structured was really well done. As an introduction, really what we're doing here is we're trying to take the idea of what does the Bible say about our own self-esteem and how we view ourselves versus... Um, do we focus on that and try to improve that through, say, therapy or, you know, self-motivation or, you know, talking to yourself in the mirror? Or do you structure your life in such a way that you create order in different ways? Meaning, like, do you focus on other people? Do you focus on serving? Do you focus on helping other people? And obviously, that's the correct answer. Spoiler alert. But as we properly fear the Lord, we will grow in this desire and ability to love God and love our neighbors, right? Because those are the commandments. As we consider what it means to love God and neighbor, we have to be thinking about those situations or the people that we tend to engage with and the people we intend to fear, right? Um, you don't have to think of like a lot of situations, but I'm sure everyone has in their minds a difficult situation that they may be in or a person that might be difficult in their lives that will generate this fear we've been talking around about. It might be a family member, right? Because those people... We fear to lose more than we do, say, just general people we might meet on the street or coworkers even, right? It's like, I may see that coworker for five years, but I know I won't see them forever, right? Whereas my family, hopefully I will have a good relationship for the, with them for a long time. But if there's a person or say a child of the, the family member or something, someone that I'm dealing with and they're difficult to deal with or they're difficult to love or they're not a believer, it's going to be um, something that we will, it will start generating fear. It will be something that we, we don't, we want to keep status, you know, the status quo. We want, if things are going good, we want it to keep going good. We don't want to rock the boat, right? But, you know, how do I put this in a delicate way? Like, the Christian life is about rocking the boat, right? The boat is going to hell. <laughs> so it's all about creating this, um, this shakeup and getting people to understand that they're not going to live forever and that um, unless they do something they are going to go to hell. So 
It's a hard message, and that's what generates the fear. We know it's a hard message. We know it's a, it's a message that for the natural man, it's difficult to swallow. So, the first thing on your outline is a reorientation to God that is from God. So we are only able to understand what it means to love others instead of fearing them um, if we understand that we love because he first loved us, right? We've probably heard that before. Because he loves us, we need to love others. We have a debt of love towards others in the sense that we've been given so much, it needs to overflow to other people, right? The command from God, when we are saved, it's not just something that, the way that the American structure is, like, oh, well, you chose to accept Jesus. It was something that you allowed him into your heart. It's a kneeling in submission to the king. And it's hard for us to understand that as Americans because the way it's structured, the way we've heard it framed, but that's really what we're doing. We're serving God now, right? We're, we're kneeling, we're saying, you're our king. You can command us what to do. You see that all throughout the Old Testament, that's, that's the picture. And uh, the problem is a lot of us, we don't know the Old Testament as well as we want to. And so because of that, we miss this picture. And in our context where we don't have a monarchy, we also miss the picture, right? We have nothing that we can look around. Like Jesus was saying, look at the fields, you know, look at these fruit trees. <laughs> or in the desert, how <laughs> many fruit trees do we have, right? So we don't have those pictures. We can't look around and see the same things. In the same way, we can't look around and see a king. Like, oh, I understand this relationship. I, li- I live with a king. I'm a servant. Or I know what honor and shame is because I live in an honor-shame culture. We don't even live in an honor-shame culture anymore, right? It's like people don't really care about their honor. I was listening to a book this week. And it was really talking about this, where if you look at the older societies and how they, they structured, it was better to die and retain your honor than to live forever. But now we're the opposite. We're trying to pharmaceuticalize ourselves and to enhance our lives and to create you know, programs and such that we can keep people living as long as humanly possible until they decide to die, right? And then it's assisted suicide. It's such a weird thing where it's like autonomy, this idea of self-rule, which is what autonomy means, is is taken to itself to the most crazy extreme, where people who are depressed in Canada can kill themselves, and people that are taking fentanyl on the street in San Francisco are dying on the street. But it's like the autonomy rules all, so we're like, we can't say this is wrong. We can't say that's wrong, can't say that's wrong. It's weird, right? It's strange. But when we think about what the Bible says about God being king and he getting it to tell us what to do, when he says, I command you to love, I command you to obey the gospel, which is, you, we talked about that in uh, the first thing where we're talking about, uh, you know, the first lesson, not the sphere of man lesson, but the original lesson that I started with. We were talking about this idea that it's obeying the gospel is actually the language used by Paul in the New Testament. So there's a sense which God commands everyone to repent, right? We know those things. So these are not structured in such a way that he's suggesting it. And the same way he's not suggesting that we love our neighbor, right? That is something that he's like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? So love for God needs to supersede everything, but out of that flows all the other commands that we should be pleased and happy and overflowing with gratitude to do, right? That's the proper heart motivation. And if heart's not there, we have to pray that God would change our heart to be that, right? Because you may still be saved, but struggle with these things because of the culture we live in, but you need to restructure your heart into the right way of thinking about God and thinking about his commands towards us. So it's true that we need people, but we don't need something from them in the sense that we need them to love us in order to feel whole, right? We should be getting that from God. So in 1 John 4, let's turn to 1 John 4 and verse, starting verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we, that we might live through him. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the idea here is God's love was costly. God's love sent Jesus to the cross to die. 
And in his incarnation and atoning work, Jesus provided the ultimate example of one that loved others in the most costly, difficult, and painful of ways. So as we think what it means to love others instead of fearing them, we must first learn to understand God's love for humanity, for ourselves. And as we are reorienting to God, we recognize his gracious choice to love us. This doesn't really boost our self-esteem. It really just devastates our pride, right? Self-esteem is built around pride, right? Pride in who you are, pride in your accomplishments. That's how the world structures it. If you think about how we build up self-esteem, that's what they say, right? Words of affirmation, right? Build yourself up. But in a way that can build up pride as a byproduct of that. But in Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So there's nothing there about us. It was done for him, which once again, in our American mindset, we rebel in our minds about that. What? No, if you want to do something and it's wholesome, it needs to be done with like no motivation at all, right? It needs to be neutral. But no, he's doing it for himself. And in a way that we can only understand with God, that is a good thing. Only God can do things for himself that's a good, right? When we do things selfishly because we have an idol or because we covet something else, that's bad. But when we serve God selflessly and he's doing things for himself and for humanity, that is good. Paul later says that because of God's gracious work in election and granting faith, we now have no room for boasting. If God has so acted towards us, how can we act with anything less than love toward others? If God has already accepted us in Christ, why do we still allow ourselves to be enslaved by desire for acceptance from others, right? So we're trying to reorient ourselves away from the way the, the world thinks. That's what I'm trying to get through to this. It's like the way that we've been built up, the way that we've been taught, the way that America is in the structure doesn't make sense in the Christian worldview, right? We have to live here, so we have to abide by certain social mores and, you know, the societal contract, if you want to call it that. But in our own minds, we are serving Christ as king. We are serving others out of the love that he has for us. That's where we're reorienting our minds. So we are rejoicing that God has accepted us. He's protected us. He's covered us. You know, he fills us. He pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. God showers himself, us with himself. So the love of God towards us is so radical, scandalous, free, transformative, that it not only should change our relationship with him, but it should also change our relationship with others. And I know that sounds great, and it's true, but I, even myself, we struggle with that, right? We struggle to have it transform us in this way. That's why sanctification, our lives as we go on, is this transformation, right? We should be transforming more into the image of Christ and being more like that. So that's the end goal. So we're trying to reorient to other people. The fear of man is real, and we want to fear God, but the only way that we're going to overcome our fears, whatever we wrote down in week three about certain things that we struggle with, and even if you wrote down some stuff last week of how we could start working towards fearing God more than fearing man, Overall, we have to start thinking about serving others and loving others more so than serving ourselves. So God's costly love towards us because of this, we take, or we should try to take big risks with people. Because Christians, we are rooted in the love of God, right? We're rooted in this acceptance and this approval in God. And so we're not seeking that from other people. And our reorientation to God helps us see other people's true value and their function. Others were not created to be feared, but for us to love, right? So that's the object. And that goes contrary to what the culture will say, right? The culture says you need to look out for yourself first. You need to have your needs met before you can meet the needs of others, which there's a kernel of truth there, right? If you're, if you're so messed up, you shouldn't be giving advice, per se, <laughs> to other people, right? I understand that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that people will say, meet all of your own needs before you meet others' needs. And if that was the case, we can always invent more needs, right? We'll never stop serving ourselves. We'll always be doing things for ourselves. 
We'll never give money to people that we see need it because they're like, well, I have some debts of my own. I'll pay off all of my debt first, which will, well, with mortgages, will just like 30 years, you know? That'll never end. So we'll spend all this time serving ourselves, not serving others. Obviously, there's wisdom here. I'm just saying, you, you get what I'm saying. I don't have to spell it out too far. So we're going to look at some differences now between loving and serving versus fearing and needing in different contexts. Loving others is not necessarily the same thing as being nice to people, although it can include that. It's sacrificing for people, but not always. And it's saying yes to some, but having wisdom about saying no too, which if that's confusing, because I just said that it can basically both be both things all the time. It's a matter of, it's kind of like when you're trying to define something that you really, it's hard to define. You have to just give a bunch of examples and you kind of get the gist, right? Love is like that. We'll read about that in, uh, uh, later in the lesson. That, you know, love is described in the Bible with a bunch of things it's like, as opposed to saying, here's a clean definition. But sometimes when we're nice um, or we're just saying yes, we're, we're actually hiding the fear of man in that, right? We're afraid to say no, so we say yes. Sometimes loving others meaning doing things that they will not immediately perceive as nice, Right? So loving others is sometimes doing something they don't immediately perceive as nice, like telling the gospel if they find that offensive. It sometimes means saying no. Right, If your children want candy for dinner, you say no. It's because you love them. It's not because you're trying to be mean. Loving others will certainly involve sacrifice, but sacrifice alone does not necessarily equal love and is not necessarily fueled by love. So maybe you feel an intense desire to give to others and sacrifice for them, but it is done out of a desire to either keep them pleased, right, will your family say, or to keep them from rejecting you. So, you know, you have, you're in work and they ask you to take on more work or you see more work is going to be taken on, and instead of creating boundaries, you say yes because that creates acceptance or people liking you more, right? That's an example. Maybe you sacrifice and give to those that should be learning to take on more responsibility themselves. And this might be, again, the complete opposite of what it means to love others. This is something that, um, if you've heard Jordan Peterson, he talks about this. Uh, he said that you'll see a lot of kids that very, in a very unhealthy way, there is a healthy way of doing this too, that's why I'm caveating. In a very unhealthy way, live with their parents until they're very old, right? Like 37, 40. And sometimes they do that because they're in a multi-generational family and that's great and healthy, especially if they own the house and their parents live with them, right? Nothing wrong with that. But if you're never stepping out and trying to form a family of your own, living on your own. What ended up happening is what he sees is something he calls the unholy alliance, where he says that the parents say to the, the child, I will keep giving you everything you want and never requiring you to grow up as long as you never leave me, right? That's really the handshake they're making. But the problem is that person will then grow to be 40 and resent their parents because they never were given the ability to fail and go out and try to live their life on their own, right? So both, in both senses, they're not healthy. Right, they're unhealthy. Yes, Sergio, good to see you. My advice, because private worship, I heard Paul Washington uh, teach that as well, because that's why there's certain people that don't discipline their kids, so that their kids in turn can worship them and be like, wow, my dad is such a good dad. Mm. He never says no to me. Right. As opposed to doing the right thing, saying no and disciplining, you know, for the glory of God. Right. Yeah, so if no one heard, if some people didn't hear what he said, he was saying that, Paul Washer was saying that it's sometimes a form of worship, right, where you don't discipline your children because you want them to like you and be, them to be your friend and for them to worship you. My dad's the greatest dad. He's always given me everything I wanted, right? And that won't really work out. You know, how many relationships do we see like that? Usually they become toxic as there's no discipline in the house, right, because then the child runs crazy and has no boundaries. But you're right, that's the desire we have a lot of the time is this acceptance from other people, acceptance from our children, right, is a, is a big one. Acceptance from other family members, acceptance from uh, people we work with. We struggle with those things because it comes from this desire of being wanted, right, being desirable, right? This is the idea behind social media, right, Instagram, things like that. We want to be desired by other people in various forms, whatever it is. The, more, um, the, the new kind of currency we deal with now is attention. We're trying to gain attention. People are trying to gain attention. Look at me, look what I'm doing. I'm doing this crazy thing. I'm gonna play this prank, pay attention to me, right? Or I'm the first one that broke this story, right? I'm the first one that took this video. Pay attention to me, give me attention. And so we're always trying to serve ourselves, right? Uh, it's true what Jesus said where he said, you know, you should love others more than yourself because the premise, the understanding is that we love ourselves, right? Instinctively. 
We want the best for ourselves, sometimes to the exclusion of others. So next one in your outline, who do we need to love and serve? Scripture provides several categories of those we should love. God, obviously, is the first one. We've considered that we have to reorient ourselves towards God. Matthew 22, 37 through 38 said, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Unlike the secular, therapeutic culture we find ourselves in, that knows no orientation toward God, and stresses an inward orientation, right? Like the Greek phrase, know thyself and to thy own self be true. Scripture points us another way. It says to know thy God, know and love your neighbor. Only then will you truly know what it means to know yourself. This is the thing that we struggle with, right? We project out our minds into the future, which is not a bad thing, but we, we picture ourselves in five years, right? You've probably heard that in business like lessons or something. Where do you want to be in five years? We project ourselves out and we try to structure our lives in such a way. But if you've noticed, most of the things that happen in your life probably weren't planned, right? There's a lot of people we talk to, or I was like this, where you're like, you're 20 and people ask you, and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to meet my wife 22, and I'll get married 23, and, you know, then I'll have two kids by the time I'm 25, and you try to structure it out. Did it ever happen that way? No, right? Life doesn't work that way. In fact, most of the things that affect us the most, like think about 9-11, right? Stock market crash, inflation, various wars, you know, all those things were unplanned by their definition, right? You had no idea they were going to happen. Probably the person you met that you were going to marry, unplanned just happened, right? Worked out, you know, um, getting married probably was the same way, right? You, you had, you didn't necessarily make no plans, right? You got planned to get married, but at the same time, all of those things slotting into place were something that you couldn't have known. So why do we obsess so much about these five-year plans and structuring every important event when the fact is, a lot of times, we're just reacting to the things that happen? Now, I'm, like I said, I'm not saying don't make any plans or don't generally have a trajectory in your life, but the point is that I'm making here with this lesson is that if you're constantly working on yourself, thinking, once I have these things figured out, I will then do what God's commanded me, is a horrible plan, right? <laughs> because you will never get there. You will never get to the point where you're ready. You'll never get to the point where you're ready to love others before you love yourself, right? Because you're always going to be working on yourself. So when we think about our neighbors, it's easy to think about the people that are easy to love, right? Well, there, there's some problems with this person, but for the most part, we get along. But when you think about all the time when God talks about people that we need to love, he, he doesn't exclude anyone. He includes your family members, your neighbors, and even your enemies, right? The example he gives is of Samaritan, right? So in Luke 6, 27 to 33, Christ says, but I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. I like to replace sinners here with mafia, right? It's easier to understand. Even the mafia is nice to themselves, right? <laughs> we're all in the mafia, guys. I hate to break that to you, right? Like we're all, before we were saved, we we're all prisoners in the same prison, right? And when prisoners are terrible to each other, you just kind of expect it. Like, of course they shanked each other in the back, right? They're prisoners. They're, they're sinners. That's what they do. But no one's exempted from that. That's where we were before God graciously saved us. So this is a high standard, right? It, it hurts to love enemies. And it's not safe to love enemies, right? They get ammo to use against you. It's scary. Yet if we are to obey Jesus and to love as he's commanded us to love, we need to love people instead of fearing them and extend that love to those who are even against us. But... Don't worry, we're going to get into what that looks like because when we think of love, we just think giving people everything they want. We've already said that's not what love is, but that's what people immediately go to. Ed Welch in one of his books says this. I, I thought it was a good quote. When confronted with enemies, we should go directly to the Psalms if we are not sure how to feel or what to say. When we are inclined to take matters into our own hands, 
The Psalms teach us to trust God, right? When we would insulate ourselves from pain, they teach us to trust God. Instead of vowing that we would never again move closer to another person, we learn to trust God. Instead of extinguishing hope, the Psalm teaches us to trust God. It is the glory of God that was David's mission, not his own vindication. That's, that's a great quote. Like I said, I, I wanted to read that. Trusting God is both the hardest thing, at least for me, because of the imminence of all the things weighing on us, right? All the things we have to worry about, all the things that don't seem to be going right, all the things we don't know about the future, right? What's going to happen with my daughter? Is she going to know the Lord? It's a big worry, but we trust God because what else can we do, right? I think about Peter. He's like, where else will we go, right? You are, you have the words of life, So uh, there's another quote by Welch. I'll read that one too. It says, God says that you should treat enemies the same way you treat friends and family. To love in this way, we need both power and discernment. We need power because we are incapable of loving the way Christ loved us. We need discernment because sometimes it's difficult to know what form love should take, right? As a result, anytime we are aware that we have specific enemies, we should seek counsel from the church in terms of fellow believers and, and elders in order to discern how to express the right kind of love, right? And this is the thing that's, this is the hardest thing, is we are told to love neighbors, but love, if we think I'm doing the best for this person, can take different forms, right? So think of it this way. Here's some examples. We obviously pray for everyone, right? But what form does even the prayer take, right? Does the prayer take with give them everything they want? And if we simply pray, Lord, open up their hearts and minds, that might require some very difficult situations in their lives to awaken them to the reality of their mortality, right? Um, I think about people I've known where they got saved after a funeral of a loved one, right? They went to the funeral, and they either saw something like, I have a friend who they saw their grandmother, all these people around them who gave testimonies to her kindness and her generosity in contrast to other people that they've gone to funerals to, right? That, that classic one that we always want, where we're just surrounded by all the people that are sad that we've gone, right? And she had that experience. Another person had a very small funeral, but what it was is that this guy had, had diabetes and he had died because it was untreated, but he had died with a Bible in his hand. And it was one of those things where they're like, wow, it was really important to him, right? He was reading at the time that he died, things like that. But it shook them up out of the stupor that we were in because we are so wealthy and prosperous in America that we really do think we're going to live forever, right? We do think that everything will be fine. If I get sick, I just go to the doctor. I get a pill, something happens, right? Especially now that we saw the chaos of what happened with COVID-19. And then kind of like now everything's back to normal in a weird way, right? We've kind of said, okay, we have treatments, we have therapeutics, we have vaccines, we have all these things that can make us safe again. And we're like, okay, fine. And then the war with Russia, that's happening out there, right? That's happening far away from us. That can never happen here, right? So we soothe ourselves back into the sense that everything is the same. Getting back to unbelievers. So when we think about praying for people, chaotic events might shake them up. But we also need to pray that, you know, um, I think about those passages where it says that if there's a person who is, has this unrepentance in the church, you need to Basically, don't even eat with such a one. Give them up to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Really hard statements that says, okay, this person's acting like an unbeliever, and now we need to treat them like an unbeliever by kicking them out of the church, making sure that the world doesn't see this correlation between us. And that's loving. That's a loving thing. And this is where the balance comes in, because we have to think about ourselves, we have to think that love for our neighbors, especially enemies, can't supersede the good of other people. What do I mean by that? It's a, you think about these paradoxical situations that are hard to work through in your head. Like, do you remember when the, um, I forget his name, which is good, I shouldn't say his name, the mass shooter that shot up the church in the South, and the families came out and said, we forgive him, right? I, I don't know if you guys remember that. It was actually a, a, a really beautiful picture of, like, forgiveness. But at the same time, I was telling, I was talking about this with uh, my friend, and I said, well, he still needs to be arrested, obviously, and still needs to go to prison. And he was like, and he's an unbeliever, he's like, well, they forgave him, though. Shouldn't he, like, get, like, a more lenient sentence? I'm like, no, because then he, he, his heart isn't changed, right? He needs to go to prison so he doesn't hurt other people, 
right? When we think about leniency, what we're doing is we're saying, we want to be lenient with this person because it'll ruin their life if they go to prison. But how many more lives are they going to ruin if they don't go to prison, right? So we think, we forget about everyone else that they might affect, and we only think about the person we can see. So that's not loving. So in the same way, we need to make sure that we're not just loving one person to the exclusion of a greater group. We need to have that discernment. We need to think about, if I don't punish this one person, or even say a child, right? If I don't take them out of the group and they're ruining it for everyone else, now I'm not being loving. Even though they'll say, oh, you're being so mean to me. Well, no, I'm not. You're not, not behaving, so I need to discipline you in an individual way. Next one on the list, neighbors. Matthew 22, 39 says, love your neighbors yourself. Jesus teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that's the catch-all ca- category. There's no age, ethnic, ethnic, socioeconomical, political, personality, or other category boundary that separates us in our terms of what we're expected to love, right? There's no limitation. Our physical families. In the context of the family, we first learn to show love and concern, and in this context, we will find the greatest difficulty in showing love because we're with them all the time, right? Can't run away from them. <laughs> you can always leave neighbors and unbelievers and, you know, people like that, but you live with your families. Brothers and sisters in the church, right? In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. And one of the best evangelistic tools we have is the love for brothers and sisters, right? There's Unbelievers are supposed to look at the church and see the great love that we have for one another. But, because we're all sinners, we struggle with that, right? We're still, we still have conflict even here because we still have things we're dealing with. Any questions on, or comments on those categories? Unbelievers, neighbors, physical families, brothers and sisters in church. Good. Next one, what shape does this love and serving take? 1 Corinthians 13 is uh, one of the best texts to understand the shape of love, if I can call it that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll read from verses 3 to 7. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's start at verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We're just going to stop there. But I will say, love never ends. So, if you sit down with this, and and with a piece of paper, and you start thinking of the descriptions of love, think about how you can begin to apply these things to the people in your lives, right? Or you can even do it now, but I would say meditate on that. Think about those passages It's not irritable, it's not rude, it does not insist on its own way, right? It bears all things. Those are the things I'm thinking of, right? How can we pray for those things for ourselves first, right? I want to be more like this. How can I ask someone I know, a family member or so forth, that will help me be accountable to doing these things, right? Here's the goals, here's what I'm trying to work on. I'm trying to be less irritable (laughs) or whatever it is, right? Keep me accountable, you know, this is something I desire. Pray for me. And think about how it applies to your life in the church first, and then filters out to everything else, our physical families, neighbors, and believers. So when we become members of the church, we have a covenant that we make with each other, right? We commit to loving one another, caring for one another in the context of the church, and we love because he first loved us, right? That's the idea that we work through. So We've read it before, and I, I was looking for it. Um, I think it's, it might be on the website, but I couldn't find it. But I was thinking about, I remember during that covenant that we were, we were talking about working with one another, encouraging one another, building one up, another up in the faith. And so that's something I want to get and kind of clip out, right? Put it on my fridge 
and say, okay, I'm really going to try to do those things in a, not a passive way, but an active way. And I think that that's what it means by uh, the next section, developing a servant's heart. How do we carry out a heart of love, and what does it look like to love instead of fear and need? Because we're called to live lives and relationships that will be messy, right? Yes, Sheila. Oh, yep, yeah. I know exactly where it is. Okay, great. <laughs> she was saying that's in the, in the little uh, blue hymnal. If you don't have one, you can ask uh, one of the elders, and I think they have extras. So we're called to live lives and relationships that will be messy, right? We can't live in isolation. Um, although being a monk seems attractive sometimes, right? You're out in nature, you have no personal possessions, you have beer, right? It's all great, but um, we are not called to do that, right? Um, it's clear from, from the scripture that, the, uh, that Paul says, I'm not saying, you know, stay away from this because then you'll have to go out of the world. I can't remember that passage. But he was basically saying that you can't, you can't remove sinful people from your life completely, right? Because they're everywhere around you, right? So we are called to live in a, in a world and live, in lo- live lives that we're going to constantly be surrounded with opportunities to love and serve others, if you want to look at it positively, but it also means the difficulty of loving and serving others, right? Because it's tough. So we have to consider our motivation even when it comes to loving and serving others, right? We have to consider first, is, our, is it our desire to love others? Is it our desire to love God? Is it our desire to serve the Lord? Or are there other motivations at work? Because that's going to kind of, I don't want to say taint what happens, because like I said, you can still do your duty even when you don't feel like doing it, and it's a good thing. But at the same time, we have to make sure that it's not polluted by our real goal is to be more accepted, like I was saying in the beginning, right? I'm doing this only because I want people to like me, and I kind of hide it in service. Oh, I'm going to do this for you. Don't worry about it. Oh, he's such a great guy. He does all these things that work for me, right? You, you can still do that, but as long as your motivation is not, I'm not looking for the praise of others, or I want to be the unsung hero. I don't want people to know that I'm doing these things, right? I just want to do it because I have some extra time, and, and I care for these people. So the second one is we have to look to Jesus. Philippians 2, 3 through 7, powerful passage. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I'm going to pause it just for a second and say how much of America is motivated by ambition. And we say ambition is a great thing to have, right? Oh, look at him. He's so ambitious. But Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he's not saying don't look at your interests at all. He's saying not only your own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we study the life of Christ, and we notice in the ways in which he loved and served others. When we consider the ways Christ humbled himself to love others, to love us, we are left without excuse in our relationship towards other people, right? It's hard to complain to the Lord when he lived a life of service in a way that we would never live. Um, you know, the, the joke, there's a joke in church, uh, in church circles, where, you know, don't pray for patience, Right? Because the idea here is that God's not going to magically zap patience into your brain, right? He's going to give you someone super difficult, and then you have to be patient with them. Um, And I think about that with Jesus, because I was thinking, man, those disciples would be really hard to be around sometimes. You know, asking the same questions all the time, not getting the points. And you you almost, like, obviously Jesus never sinned, but it's one of those things where you see the cracks. (laughs) Sometimes it's like, you're foolish, slow to to understand what was happening, right? It's like, he kind of blows up a bit at them. So um, that's a good thing. Maybe it means that, you know, every time you blow up, you're not being impatient with a person. But it is something that you kind of want to take a person and shake them sometimes. Get it through your head, right? This is, this is not hard to grasp. But we think about the patience and what he had towards the disciples. He was imminently patient with them. He was patient with the crowds. In fact, the most people he wasn't patient with were the Pharisees, right? Because they should know better, 
right? And that's how it is in real life too, right? When someone should know better, like, what are you doing? So there's, a, there's an analogy, um, think of it this way. Budget de- deficits are bad, but love deficits are good. And what I mean by that is that we haven't received it now, but we are getting an inheritance that's going to far away any deficits we have in this. You know, like if you go into debt, $100,000, right? People are like, wow, that person's really bad with money. That's true, especially if you're giving away money that you can't afford to give. But if you're about to get an inheritance of $50 million, it doesn't really seem that bad to you, right? You're like, how can I give more away? I don't need 50 million, five would be good, right? I can give the way and make the world a better place. In the same way, when we think about love, we are giving away and it seems self-sacrificial, right? We're taking away from ourselves. We're losing the opportunities we have. We're giving up our time, which is a precious resource. That's the, truly the only like, non-redeemable resource, right? Like you can't get it back once you spend it. And yet we're spending time with people and not doing the things that necessarily we want to do because we're serving others, we're doing these duties we have in being married, serving our children, serving our friends, helping our family members, right? Whatever it is, we're spending time, we're spending resources, and, but we're giving out of love. We want the best for these people. So even though we're, bring, we're building up a deficit, if you wanna say that, because we're not getting it back all the time, right? Especially when we're talking about unlovable people, people that are hard to love. Sometimes when you do something really nice for a person, they don't even recognize it, they don't even notice. Have you ever done this where you're gonna give a tip and you're like making sure you make eye contact first? This is me, I'm tipping you, okay? Extra coffee, right? Something is. But you know, like we'll do that because we want the acknowledgement. But a lot of the times we'll do that and we shouldn't worry about the acknowledgement. God sees, he knows, right? We have to believe that. So we need to learn how to regularly pray for people, pray for their relationship with God Pray that the Lord will give us a heart of love towards other people, towards those people. And pray that he will remove a heart driven by fear. Fear that we will lose whatever acceptance we're trying to generate. If we are doing things out of acceptance and we haven't loved others well, we should confess this to God in our own prayers and to other people that we know we aren't loving as we should and say, I'm going to work on this. So I want us to think about how we can minister to others in specific ways. You know, I want us to think of ways, very practically, that will make their lives better. Usually that involves time, right? We need to make more time for other people and really cut out the things that we say, you know, I like this, it's good, because a lot of things that we like are good. But we need to make sure we manage our time, we're giving it to the people that it's going to last longer, right, than the things that we like. So we're doing it for long term. We're doing it to honor God, and we're being self-sacrificial in that. Any questions or comments on that before I move on? No? Results of loving and serving rather than fearing and needing. Okay, so here's the results. We have unity. As we seek to love and serve versus need and fear, we're able to pursue and experience the unity that should be manifest in the body of Christ. Unity doesn't mean just getting along, right? Um, you definitely see this with uh, political movements, right? Unity is not just getting along. You have to also believe the same things, right? You don't have true unity, right? It, if you say one thing, but you don't actually want to go towards the same goal, nothing happens. So as we collectively fix our eyes on Jesus, we have to find unity with one another in the small things so that we can do the greater goal of trying to evangelize the world, right? Serve, serve the world um, and do the mission that God's commanded us to. I think this is the problem that we have right now. Well, it's not right now. It's been around since the early church, right? Ever since people got together and formed a, a group, there's always problems. This is why I laugh whenever I see uh, things like Star Trek, these utopias where everyone just gets along. There's no infighting. There's no rebellion on earth in, in Star Trek. There's no one says, I don't like the way Starfleet's doing things and like kicks the hill. Yeah, it's, a, it's obviously just a, uh, it's the way that we desire things to be. But you'll notice in any kind of utopian or dystopian future, the person that wrote the book, it's their idea of how it should look, right? It's, if everyone just listen to me, just make me the king, make me emperor, and I'll fix everything, right? 
I really mean that. If you guys make me emperor, I could fix everything. It'd be, it'd be great. But that's not the way things are, right? People have to work with other people. We have an exponential effect with one another, right? When two people do something, it's like three people do something. When three people do something, it's like nine people do something, right? When you split up the work effectively and you work on a team, if you've ever worked on a team doing some kind of landscaping project or something like that, the work gets done much faster than if you do it by yourself, right? Because you have no time to take a break, right? You have no time to look at it with fresh eyes. In the same way, using a small example to a larger example, if we are trying to do this very big project of evangelizing just Las Vegas, not even the world, let's just think small term right now, right? And when I say small term, I'm like, I should actually probably say neighborhood, right? Neighborhood, then a larger area, and then the city, right? If we're just thinking about that, we have to agree with, like, guidelines and, like, how we're going to do it and who's going to work on what shifts, right? We talked about this when we were doing the foodie fest or San Gennaro fest, right? You need to have a leader. You need to have, like, a plan. You need to have people that volunteer. It, it requires unity. I can't say, oh, I'm not going to do it with that guy because, you know, he said one thing, mean thing to me one time. Or, you know, I don't know, he's kind of flaky on infant baptism. I don't think he's a real Baptist, right? Uh, I don't know if I can serve with him. I'm not saying these things aren't big. I used a silly example, and I used a much more substantial example on purpose. Because there is a variance in every one of us, right? Every one of us has blind spots. We don't know that we have blind spots because we're blind to them. But people need to love us, and we hope that they would love us despite our blind spots. But it also means having an open mind and a heart to hearing those things, those critiques about ourselves. It's tough. No one likes to be critiqued. No one likes to hear it, right? Um, in business, we say that sometimes. Oh, I'd love if people just respond and gave me comments and critiqued me. Not really. <laughs> a couple people do. Or you'll be like, oh, that's a good comment. Okay, okay, guys, that's enough comments, right? Okay, I get it. You don't like it, or whatever it is. In the same way, we, there's a balance. But we need to be willing and humble like Philippians says, to think of others more highly than ourselves and to receive those comments if they're legitimate. I'm not saying listen to every single one. People may not have context, but take it in the best possible light that when people are offering an opinion or they're offering a critique of something, most times they're trying to do it out of some sense of trying to make you better. Not always. We, we have discernment there, but you know what I mean. You can tell when someone generally wants to help versus just criticizing you. So we seek to love others in specific ways. Like I said, we're, we're trying to think about that. We, we know the people we struggle with. We know the people we interact with. How can we love people, especially the people that are difficult to love? And how do we have that peace, the joy, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit that sounds great when we read the fruit of the Spirit, but when we think about long-suffering and peace and gentleness, the way this is actually manifests is typically with difficult people, right? So any comments or thoughts on any of that? No, it's a lot. It's a very, it's, it's going to be personal to each one of you. Yes, Cora. Uh, what you were saying had a very uh, good manifestation during the last week. Mm, with VBS. Praise the Lord. Yeah, I'm going to repeat that just if people didn't hear over here because sometimes it's, uh, Sister Cora sometimes speaks softly. No, she was saying that if you think about VBS, I wasn't here, but there was 50 to 60 kids, amazing unity. The fact that everyone served even in places they weren't comfortable serving, 
right? Um, they, were, they knew the mission, right? The mission was to help the kids understand, you know, um, I saw all the decorations up, the, the, the idea of the armor of God and right, and, and uh, what it means to be in difficult situations. Um, there was different pictures of difficulty in the cry room. So we were in there and we were looking at those. And trusting God even in those moments, you know, of difficulty. Which is kind of what we're talking about here too, right? Trust God. Trust God. Serve one another. These things are simple. So you ask the question, well, why, why do we need five weeks on it? But I hope that you guys have had some practical stuff out of this, right? It's a lot of it's self-examination. I've challenged you to like, yeah, even if you haven't done it, I challenge you again. Sit down, write through, who do I fear? How can I not fear that anymore? And how can I have practical ways to serve others to overcome that? And through the duty, through doing the things you know you ought to do, the, the emotions will come then. And in intentional self-sacrifice and doing the things you don't want to do, I feel like the only thing that's going to sustain you through that is love of God, right? So pray, do the duties, pray, and God will grow you. That's what his word promises. Any other comments or thoughts? No? Okay. Right about time, so let's pray and close. Our Father in heaven, we do desire to honor and glorify your name. We don't know what that looks like, and we fail so often. But Lord, you have changed our hearts, and we really do desire for the world to know you. There is such unity in speaking to a brother or sister who knows you. Even if we disagree with various other things, we know you, and we know what you said to us in your word, and we praise you, and we thank you for the mercy and grace that you've shown us. It's an amazing thing that you would love sinners who have done nothing to earn your love. It's a love unlike anything that we can think of. It was ultimate. You loved us to the very end, and you finished the work, forgiving us of all of our sins. Jesus rose again on the third day, proving that he defeated death, and that he was who he said he was. I thank you for those promises fulfilled, that you did it in time. That it, wasn't, it was so recent in our memory that it's not a myth. I pray, Father, as we think about all the good things that you've given us, all the good things you've done for us, all the ways that you continue to bless us, that that would overflow in our hearts to love people even when they're unlovable. And for our us ourselves to desire to become better people, to become more patient and gentle and kind so we in turn are easier to love because each one of us is difficult to love too in our own ways. I pray for peace and unity in this church. I pray for brotherly and sisterly love. I pray for respect and honor for elders. I pray that the youth would desire to grow into the stature of being adults. I pray that we reject the world and its teachings and its worldview. And for each one of us here, myself included, Father, I pray that you would help transform our minds and renew it with the scripture so we can counter the claims and the truth claims of the world as a daily battle. Thank you for each one of the people here. I thank you for this church. I thank you for our pastors. Pray now that as we continue to worship you, that you would continue to work on our hearts continue to give us gratitude and love that would overflow into the rest of the week. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.